Good? All right. Well, please open your Bibles to, I think I say Luke 13, but I'm pretty sure it's John 13. We're, we're starting off well. Is John 13 the first scripture? Thank you. John 13. All right. John 13. As most of you know, we've dedicated this year uh, to focusing on the church, the doctrine of the church, what she does, who she is, how she acts. And so we've been preaching on the church regularly, as you've noticed likely, and we've covered what the church is, church membership, church polity, who has authority in the church, why Jesus loves the church, and various other things about the church. One of the other things that we've done as a church to help uh, teach on the church is have all the small groups go through Diedrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. It's a short little book on the church's uh, life together and how the members interact with one another, and we hope that you've found that helpful in the small groups. We really do. And though Josh has answered this from time to time, hopefully you've had this type of question pop up in your mind, you know, why are we spending a whole year talking about the church? Why do our pastors and elders want us to spend an entire year thinking about this? Now, there are various ways that we can answer that. But one of the main reasons that we want to teach on the church is because we want to be a church, we want our church to be a church that has real love among us. We want to be a church that has genuine love for each other. And as you've heard Josh mention, the staff has been getting together uh, on Thursday mornings to go through the bylaws. And something that keeps coming up is how cold and loveless our bylaws come across. And we don't want to be a church that's a cold fish that's dead and has no love. We want to be a church that real, has real warm love. And that's not to say that we don't already have real love, because we do. For many of you, the reason that you uh, remained at this church is because you've been loved here. You've been loved by your pastor. You've been loved by the person in your small group, your small group leader, the friends you've made. And when people move away from here, one of the things that we often hear is that they miss the love of our church. Now, you can go to another church and pretty easily find a church that has uh, better worship music. You could possibly go find a church that has somebody who will preach faithfully. But it is a hard thing to find a church that has real love. And if you don't believe me, you can ask many of the people that have moved away that, that long and miss the love that we have here. But for many of us, we just stumbled in here by the grace of God, right? Like, it's not like you were so great and then you just knew that this is, this is a church that has love and I know that I'm going to be able to be really good at loving people here. That's just not... I can still remember during, um, <clears throat> listening to a sermon during my internship, and I've told this story before, but listening to a sermon during my internship in college and being convicted that I need to join a church because I was just attending a church. And there's a big difference between just attending a church and, and joining and being a part of a church. And I was convicted that I needed to join God's church. And I listened to the sermon, I had this conviction, and I could you not, 15 minutes later I get a phone call from Josh about how he's planting a church in Bloomington. And they're looking for someone to help lead worship. And I reluctantly met with him. I don't know if I told him during the meeting, before the meeting, or after the meeting, but sometime in the meeting I said, I'm like 95% sure this is a no. I just, 
And yet, it's been over a decade, and here I am, by the grace of God. And the point is here that most of us just kind of stumbled in here by accident. And when I say accident, I just mean the sovereign ordination of the Lord to direct your steps into this family by no righteousness of your own, but solely because he decided to bring you here, and he was kind to you. And here we are, finding ourselves in a church that has real love by the grace of God. And our, our church has real love because you have real love for each other. And there is much to commend you for. Uh, people wouldn't stay at our church if there was not real love here. Your simple, humble efforts to love the body really do matter. Whether it's attending a baby shower or cutting down trees at Josh's house or working at the rummage sale or opening your home for a meal, or conversing in meaningful ways after the service, showing up on Sunday morning to serve, grabbing lunch with someone, sitting in someone's home when they're going through trial, bringing them a meal from their favorite restaurant, confronting someone about their sin or weakness and helping them grow in it. Your love is real, and your pastors and elders, we really are proud of you. Sincerely, we mean that. We are proud of you, of how you love each other. But before I make you feel too good about yourself, We also know that you have real significant ways that we need to grow in as a church. We're 10 years old, okay? So if you have kids, you can think of maybe what a 10-year-old's like. I have a 9-year-old. And you think of how proud you are over your 10-year-old and how much they've grown. And at the same time, you think they have a lot to learn, right? You're proud of where they're at and what God's done, but they have a lot to learn. And we have lots to learn. Lots of ways that we can improve. Lots of ways that we can grow. And so our aim is to grow in love. And if you have uh, your Bible open, you can look at John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And Jesus gives us this example of how he's loved us. And so we are also called to love one another. No one in here is too proud, I'm thinking, that they have, that they don't, no one in here thinks they love like Jesus did. And they don't have rooms to grow. So as I've said, we've been going through Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, to try to help teach you how to actually love one another. And probably the most helpful chapter in the book, at least in my opinion, is, is chapter four. And so we thought it would be good to review uh, some of the things that come up in chapter 4. Uh, because it's really, it's everything that we're wanting uh, in our church to grow in. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a simple people who desire to grow in love. And Father, just like children need direction and discipline and help from their earthly fathers, your church needs the same and more from you. Would you help us grow in love as we consider these things this morning? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, there are many things that we could talk about that we need to grow in as a church. If you read your Bible, you'll see that you're supposed to help one another. You're supposed to admonish one another. You're supposed to serve one another, rebuke one another, encourage one another, and on and on and on it goes. And those would all be fitting things to discuss, and we'll talk about some of them. But there's a place that we need to start before we get to any of those things. And the place that we have to start is really dealing with yourself and how you view yourself and you view your brothers and your sisters. 
In Luke 9.46, it says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now Jesus' disciples are sitting there. They're foolishly starting to uh, argue among each other about who is the greatest. And we read that and we think, those idiots. Don't they know that the first will be last? How could they be so arrogant to be debating that between one another? How could they actually be that proud? And it's like, hello! If you've ever listened to a proud person complain to someone about how that person's being proud, you just want to like show them a mirror, right? Because you're just like, dude, you're doing the same exact thing. You read that passage and you think, well, they're dumb. I don't do that. Not realizing that you're actually guilty of the very same thing. I mean, you're literally thinking, well, I'm greater than the disciples because I'm so much wiser that I would never argue about being the greatest disciple. Probably because you already think you are the greatest disciple. Listen, there's not a person in this room who doesn't do this and is not guilty of this, okay? We're all tempted to have that same argument arise in our hearts. It may be subtle, it may be unconscious, you may not actually talk about it out loud, but it must die in our church. If you do not kill this in you, it will destroy you and it will destroy our church. If the pastors and elders don't have help eradicate this from the church, it will destroy her. But even now, you may be tempted to think, I don't actually do that. I've never actually thought I'm the greatest disciple in the church. I know I'm not the greatest disciple in this church. Come on, you can't be serious. That's what I do. Well, some of you are hard workers. And you look around at other families and you think, well, if they weren't as lazy and if they were more disciplined, they would not be in the situation that they are in. If they just ate healthier and if they just exercised a little more, they wouldn't be sick all the time. If they would just discipline and train their children like I train my children, their kids would be not acting out like if they would just work hard and spend their money more wisely, I know they don't spend their money very wisely. I was over at their house and I saw what they just bought. They, would, they wouldn't be in the financial strain that they're in. If they would just be more faithful to church and coming to small group, their marriage would be in a much better place. Hopefully you can think of some of the things that you've done where you've thought, I'm better than them. But it's not just the strong looking down on the weak. The weak takes this position too. You might feel judged by someone who's doing that to you. Maybe they're judging you and you think, well, they just don't have the discernment to understand my situation. Or you think, that person, that person judging me is just proud and they can't even see how proud they are. They're not humble like me. The church is full of this, and you have to kill it. You have to kill it in yourself. You have to kill it in your spouse. You have to kill it in your kids. You have to fight it when you see it pop up amongst your brothers. It has to die, or it will destroy our church. Listen, some of the most polite and pious people that I have ever met have been the worst about this. So if you do not see how you are guilty of this, you can come talk to me after the sermon, and I will be happy to help show you how you are guilty of this. I joke, but I am very serious because if you do not see it, it's true of you 
You just can't see it. And if you don't see it, you can't put it to death, and it will hurt our church. To be able to kill it, you have to be humble to see it. You have to realize how awful your sins are. And when you think of yourself as the chief of sinners, like the Apostle Paul did, you'll stop trying to win against every other person in the church. God doesn't love you more because you show up to small group more than the other people in your small group. Because you're more disciplined than the rest of your small group. That doesn't make God love you more. Jesus still died for your sins too. He had to die because of your sins. Without God's grace intervening in your life, the day of judgment before the throne of God would be just as bad for you as it would be for anybody else. So listen, Christ died for you. He died for you because you're a really terrible sinner. And you can take a breath and not have to try to prove yourself to God, to yourself, or anyone else because your value comes solely because Christ Christ loved you and died for you and paid your penalty. And the church is so much more free when people are not snobs about their strengths and walking around trying to show the next person up because they're the greatest disciple. If you didn't open your Bible this week, it is okay to show up to small group and tell the guys, I did not open my Bible this week. Or tell someone, my wife and I have been fighting all week about this dumb situation and we've been bickering back and forth and we just need help. I'm just tired of fighting my wife all week. You can actually say that in small group. But you can't say that if you're trying to be the best disciple. What you'll do is you'll go to small group and you'll say some like half-truth because you don't want people to really know how bad you are. And you'll say, well, my time with the Lord just, it hasn't been great. It could be better. I'm working on it. Or, you know, my wife and I, we just have a little bit of conflict that we're working on, so if you could just pray for us. When a church lives in a state of fighting over who's the greatest among them, there can never be any true love in the church. But when the church can be secure that they're loved by Christ because of his sacrifice for them on the cross, and they can just be honest about their weaknesses and not be worried about trying to prove themselves to the next person, that church can have real love. You've heard from the pulpit, Josh, say that the cross makes you free to be a sinner. And that might sound scandalous, but of course we don't mean that the cross allows you to go on and keep sinning purposely. But the cross allows you to be honest about who you are. You're a sinner. You have real sins. You have a flesh that is still stained with sin. And you don't have to be perfect for anybody in this church because Christ was perfect for you on your behalf. And if our church doesn't start here and eradicate this from our church, she will never be able to have real love. I can't say that enough. And you want to know... One of the most effective ways to help deal with this in your heart? Shut up. Really, just learn to hold your tongue. One of the most helpful things for someone who's struggling with evil thoughts, who's always comparing themselves, trying to make themselves the greatest disciple, is just to not open your mouth about it. James 3.2 says, And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. It goes on to talk about how we put bits into mouths, or in the horse's mouth, to guide their whole body, right? And how ships are steered from just a small rudder. And in the same way, the tongue guides the body. 
So some of you go home to your spouses and you say every thought that comes to mind about someone in their situation. You don't have to do that. You can think about something and you can just not say it. In seriousness, if you're a judgmental person, this can be one of the most helpful things for you to do is just to not tell anyone what thought comes into your mind. Don't tell your friend, don't tell your spouse what you think about something. It doesn't matter what you think about it. It's probably not necessary for you to say it. So if you can bridle your tongue there, there's probably a good chance that you're going to be able to start controlling your mind and your thoughts because you won't be spending your time always talking about somebody else and judging them. I tried to shorten this quote from Bonhoeffer, but it's, it's so good, so I'm going to read it and try to comment on it as we go. Where this discipline of the tongue is practiced right from the beginning, each individual will make a matchless discovery. I love he will be able to cease from constantly scrutinizing the other person, judging them, condemning him, putting him in his particular place where he can gain ascendancy over him, and thus doing violence to him as a person. Now, because he's held his tongue, now he can allow his brother to exist as a completely free person, as God made him to be. His view expands. And to his amazement, for the very first time, he sees, shining above his brethren, the richness of God's creative glory. It's like, whoa, I can actually see why God made that person like that. He didn't make everyone just like me, and for a very good reason. And I can see why God made that person like that. And it's actually good that he made them like that and he didn't make them just like me. goes on to say, God did not make this person as I would have made them. That's what we want. We just want, we want to make everybody in the church how we would make them. And when they're not like that, well, they're not as good as us. He did not give him to me as a brother for me to dominate and control, but in order that I might find above him the creator. Now the other person in freedom with which he was created, becomes the occasion of joy, whereas he was only a nuisance and an affliction. So he's saying, I used to judge them, and I used to get annoyed by them, but now I actually enjoy them, and I'm happy to have them around. God does not will that I should fashion the other person according to the image that seems good to me, that is, in my own image. Rather, in his very freedom from me, God made his, this person in his image, I can never know beforehand how God's image should appear in others. That image always manifests as completely new and unique form that comes solely from God's free and sovereign creation. To me, it might seem, to me, the sight may seem strange, even ungodly, but God creates every man in the likeness of his son, the crucified. After all, even that image certainly looks strange and ungodly to me before I grasped it. So someone might seem strange to you, and their personality might even feel almost ungodly to you. But it's actually because God created them that way for good purposes. I wish I could spend more time unpacking this, but you'll, you'll know that you're putting to death, you're fighting to be the greatest disciple. How will you know that you're actually putting that to death? You'll know that you're putting that to death when there are people that used to annoy you in the church or you used to get frustrated by, but now they're sweet and they're precious to you. They used to bother you for whatever reason, primarily because they weren't like you and they had a different personality or a skill set that bothered you, but now you really value them and you like having them around. You're thankful for them. 
that's when you know you've started to put this in death. And if that hasn't happened to you, you hear me explain that and you think, no, these people, these same people have annoyed me for years. Well, there's a good chance that you're still trying to be the greatest disciple and you need to learn to hold your tongue. You need to view everyone in this church like a link in the chain. Every single person is a link in the chain, and if you're strong in something, you can't look at the weak person and think, we don't need that person. That person isn't helping in this situation. If the strong people destroy everybody in the ch- all the weak in the church and they remove them, then the chain is broken, and the church has no chance of being loving. When the strong and weak can actually exist together, and they're not judging each other, then and only then can a church have real fellowship with each other. Well, the other thing that's needed for the church to have real love, it, the, excuse me, the other thing that's needed for our church to have is real humility and meekness. I touched on this briefly, but for the sake of time, I'll say this. If you do not see yourself as the chief of sinners in this church, you have no chance at loving other people. Now, I know that sounds extreme. Bonhoeffer says this, In my sinfulness, if my sinfulness appears to me to be any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sin of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. The adage, my sin first, my sin worst, should be ever-present in our mind. My sin first, my sin worst. The person who actually believes that will actually love. And the person who doesn't, will not. If you don't believe that your sin is worse, then you will judge the people who you think are worse than you. They will never live up to your great standard and you will never actually love them. The hardest part about preaching this reality is that the people who understand this and know that they're the actual chief of sinners, they know this to be true. And that yet, if you, if you don't actually believe it and know that you're the chief of sinners... You might think that in your head, but you don't actually know it to be true. I'll talk on that in a second. Sure, you know, in theory, that you should feel like you're the chief of sinners. But you don't. And it's the pain of pastors everywhere to fight proud fools in the church who seem to never be able to open their eyes to how, how terrible their sin is. So they just go around to others, devouring and judging them. So do you see yourself as the chief of sinners in this church? Is your husband a worse sinner than you, ladies? Or are you the chief of sinners? Is someone in your small group worse than you? If so, then you really haven't even begun to see your sinfulness. And love cannot exist in a church unless people see themselves this way. But our love has to go even further than just hubbling ourselves and seeing ourselves correctly and holding our tongue. We Christians, we lend our ears to our brothers and sisters in love. And one of the greatest ways you can love someone is just to sit down with them and let them talk to you and listen to them. You don't have to contribute to the conversation even. You don't have to always say something. You don't have to have a good word of advice or the right thing to say in every circumstance. You can just lend your ear. The people who you love to talk to are the best listeners. You go to your pastor because he listens to you. 
the person who actually listens and understands, the person who actually listens to you can actually understand you and therefore actually love you and help you. Many times when somebody's talking, they're telling you something and then a thought pops into your head and it reminds you of something else. So you, want, you, know, you have this thought that you want to share. Just don't say it. You don't have to say every thought that pops into your head. Actually train yourself to just listen and say, you know, I'm just here, I'm going to listen to this person. I'm not here to just tell them my stories. I want to actually grow in loving people and listening to them. And if you actually learn to listen, you'll actually learn to be helpful to others because a loving church is actually helpful. Some of you are very good at being helpful. Many of you were at Pastor Josh's house yesterday knocking down big trees, giving up your time. Many of the ladies helped out with the baby shower yesterday. People are constantly bringing meals to one another. But some of you still need to grow in this area more than others. And you'll know you need to grow in this area if you find yourself worrying or often concerned about how helping this person is going to mean that you lose your Saturday or you won't be able to do this fun thing. If you're constantly worrying about that when a need arises, you probably need to grow in helpfulness to the church. You know, one of the biggest ways that God helps you grow in your love is by messing up your plans. That's the story of our church, right? We had plans. God messed them up. Something will come up and you'll have to decide, do I keep my plans... Or do I actually cancel them and be helpful? Now, is my point to say that everybody who didn't show up at Josh's house yesterday isn't helpful? No, that's not what I'm saying. I didn't show up at Josh's house yesterday to help. But if you look back at your last six months to a year and you can't think of any time that you've canceled plans to help somebody else, there may be, you may need to grow in loving others by being helpful, helping them before you help yourself. If you never let God interrupt and cancel your plans because there's someone that needs your help, there's a good chance that you just see yourself as so important that you can't be bothered to help out unless it fits your schedule. And a church that is full of people who are too self-important to actually be helpful with one another is a church without love. And your loving helpfulness goes far beyond just helping out on Saturday morning when someone needs help. You do well, and we do do well, giving our help for physical needs, to our brothers and sisters. But there are more ways of helping than just doing manual labor. And one of those ways is what Scripture calls bearing with one another. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you know that you are a burden? You're a burden to others. You really are. I mean that. People have to bear with you and your sins, and you have to bear, and they have to bear your burdens. And that might seem mean for me to say, but it's actually precisely because people love you that they bear with you. Love requires bearing with the other person. Think about an abandoned child, a child whose parents has no love for them. That child is no burden at all to that parent because the parent has no love for that child. But a parent who loves their child, that child becomes a burden worth bearing. That parent is inconvenienced 
out of love to bear with the child. The world is constantly trying to come out from any burden. No one is a burden to the pagan because they only care about themselves. The Christian, though, is one who bears with one another's burdens. He actually long suffers and endures you, and people do the same to them. And I don't know why it kind of seems shocking to say to you that, that you're a burden. Because it really shouldn't be that you're a burden. It really, it shouldn't be that shocking to you. I mean, we just talked about how you have to see yourself as the chief of sinners. And then we get to this verse about bearing one another's burdens, and we feel insulted that I would say that you're a burden to other people. And what that proves is that you don't actually see yourself as the chief of sinners. In your head, you go, yes, I know I'm the chief of sinners. I see that Paul says that. But in reality, you don't believe that. Because if you actually believed that, if you actually believed you were the chief of sinners, you wouldn't be insulted or put off by me telling you that you're a burden to other people. Instead, you would go, of course I'm a burden to other people. How could I not be with all this sin? I'm amazed that anybody's put up with me for all these years. It's amazing to me that my spouse has actually loved me all these years and bared with me the burdens that I bring with all my sin. That I'm in this church and people have bared with me. That's what somebody who actually thinks they're the chief of sinners thinks. You are a burden to your church. You're a burden to your pastors. You're a burden to your elders. You're a burden to your small group leaders. You're a burden to your friends. But in a church that has real love, that church loves, and I mean loves to bear with you and all your burdens because the church is full of people who know that they themselves have burdened everyone else and the church and God has loved them in spite of it and bared with their burdens. So they're happy to do the same to you. Bonhoeffer mentions that men were such a heavy burden to Christ that he had to endure the cross. But he didn't bear with us with disdain. He bore us as a mother carries a newborn baby. He was happy to bear our burdens, and the Christian is happy to do the same to others as Christ has done to them. This word bearing is so important because the whole Christian life can be summed up with bearing a cross. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He denies himself, the Christian denies himself and bears his cross Bearing is precisely what a Christian does. If a man refuses to bear, he's denying the law of Christ. So the question is, is do you actually feel a burden for the other Christians in this room that are part of your church? You know, one of the ways that we bear with one another is something we talked about earlier. God didn't make everyone like you. And so there are personalities in our church that are just destined to clash. There's no way for it to not happen. Maybe you're quiet. You like little conversation. But God put you in a small group with somebody who's loud, and they like to talk to you. Maybe you're a go-with-the-flow type of person. But you're also in a church with people who want every detail planned out who love to plan details. And you're like, well, I just want to go to the flow. And so you're, just, you're clashing, right? There's no way about it. Somebody wants to go with the flow, another person wants to plan out the details. 
I mean, do I really need to help you think about how there are people in this church whose personalities and oddities just clash with yours? Or can we, do we, are we going to pretend that we're just so godly and we're so loving that we just appreciate everything about everyone in this room? Or can we just be honest that, no, you want everyone to be like you, and the people who are not like you or opposite of you or seem weird to you are people that you have to bear with. It doesn't even have to be bearing one another's weaknesses or sins. It could just be that God made this person different than you, and how they act or what they do seems odd to you, and so you have to endure. You have to bear with them. You endure them by giving them the freedom to be themselves and how God made them to be and not constraining them or forcing them to become like you. And you'll have to guard yourself. One of the odd temptations in the church is is not being joyful when other people that are different than you fall. The strong can't despise the weak, and the weak can't judge the strong. If someone whose personality is a burden to you, uh, they stumble, make sure there's not some twisted sort of malice in your heart that kind of rejoices. If you're a really organized person, and you see somebody in the church who is not that way, you know, you're type A, you've got everything in order, you see somebody in the church who's not like that, and because they're not like that, something falls apart for them, make sure that you don't subtly rejoice that they stumbled. Instead, it's your job to help that person. But it's not your job to help them in the way of trying to make them a type A person who is exactly like you. That's not what I mean by helping them. The point is that you help bear their burdens and you give them people the freedom to be the way that God made them to be. Now, for some of you type A people, my wife used to probably be tempted like this. If I were to say that, you would think, well, I mean, I'm just trying to help them get their act together so they don't stumble anymore. And there's way more than just my wife in this room. So, I mean, if they were just really a little more organized, they wouldn't have this problem. If they would just be a little more like me, and it's fun to, you know, pick a type A people, but you all do this. We all do this. And if you're tempted to think, like what I just described, it's because you probably do not want to bear with the other person and how God made them. You want them to be just like you, and you can't rejoice that God made someone different than you. And I don't know how to get you to see that God made the church with varying different personalities and oddities as he did. He did this for his pleasure. And if you can't rejoice in that and bear with them, then your issue is actually more with God than it is with that person. Bear with someone and give them the freedom of being who God made them to be. But there's more to bearing than just that. You might be bearing somebody, you might bear with someone and give them the freedom to be a certain type of person. But the more difficult type of bearing, for sure, is bearing when another person sins. People sin against you, you against them. You know this in your family. You have sins that injure your household, your spouse, your kids. They bear with your sins and weaknesses. And it's no different in the church. You carry those same sins from home right through the doors of the church, and the church bears with you. 
But the church doesn't sit here and have contempt or disdain for having to deal with your sins. The church is happy to bear with you in your sin because Christ has done the same and is doing the same for them. A lot of this sermon I kept thinking, like, how do I help someone? How do I help people do this? How can I help people listen better? How can I help people uh, be more helpful? How can I help people bear other sins better? And more than any other sermon I preach, I just thought, well, I can kind of try to explain it to explain people, explain to people what it is, but the Spirit has to do work in your heart. Because there's no way I can make someone bear someone else's burdens with joy. You can get sinned against in the church, and you can get mad and annoyed by it, or you can bear with one another, as Christ has done for you. One has real love, the other has only love for itself. Do you want people to bear with you and your sins? Of course you do. Do you really want to live in a church where everyone is subtly, or maybe not subtly, annoyed with you and your reoccurring sins? Does that not sound like just terrible to come to church and oppressive? Or would you rather be in a place where people love you even though you sin and you sin and you sin and you sin, and where people forgive you and help you in the midst of your sin? And they help you not because they're annoyed by your sin and they just want to change you so they don't have to deal with you because you're such a burden to them, but because they really love you and they want to help you. I love this quote from Bonhoeffer. We may suffer the sins of our brother. When we may suffer the sins of our brother, we do not need to judge. This is a mercy for the Christian. For when he does this, or for when he for when does sin ever occur in the community that he must not examine and blame himself for his own unfaithfulness in prayer and intercession, his lack of brotherly service, of fraternal reproof and encouragement, indeed for his own personal sin and spiritual spiritual laxity by which he has done injury to himself, the fellowship, and the brethren. Since every sin of every member burdens and indicts the whole community, the congregation rejoices in the midst of all the pain and the burden of the brother's sins inflicts that it has the privilege of bearing and forgiving. Do you ever listen to somebody confessing sin in small group and think, well, part of me, part of that is on me. You know, not that they're not responsible, but part of me is because I didn't pray for them at all this week. I meant to pick up the phone and call them and encourage them, but it just never came. I, I told him I thought he should probably do this. I, I meant to call him, and he didn't, and I didn't call him, and then he did what I thought he shouldn't do. Do you ever feel that every sin of the people in your small group is an indictment on the whole community? If you do, then you know what it is to bear with one another. If you only get annoyed with your brother's sins, we're dealing with this again this week, okay. It's just their problem. Then you probably know very little of what bearing is. And we want to be a church that bears with one another. Church, we know that you sin. We know you have big sins. We are not shocked by big sins. You can be a sinner and a really big sinner and fit in at this church. But that will only happen if we as a church decide that we will be happy to bear with one another even when it's really hard to do so. Even when we're sinned against. So you may be able to bear with someone and their sins when you are just listening to them. The sins don't really involve you. 
But it's another thing to bear with someone when they've sinned against you. When your husband fails for the one millionth time and you have joy in your heart, you've learned to bear with When your wife sins against you again and you smile because you love her even with all her faults and her sins. When your brother in your small group lets you down or your sister lets you down and you still love and enjoy them, that's when you've learned to bear with one another. Uh, I told a few guys, uh, and I told our small group this, but about a month ago I was walking downstairs into our laundry room. And my wife was, I can't remember if she was behind me or she was in the room already, um, but she was there. And I remember walking in the room, and in the door frame of the room were two full laundry baskets full of laundry. They were sitting right there in the entrance of the door frame, and I had to step kind of over them to get to it. And when I was stepping over them, I like nailed my pinky toe right on the door frame. And it hurt so bad, and I was mad. I was instantly angry that my wife had left these laundry baskets right here where it was an attempt to murder me. And so I raised my voice at my wife and I said, Would you please move your stupid laundry baskets? And I'm hobbling away walking into the next room, and then I'm instantly just kind of filled with like guilt. I just raised my voice, yelled at my wife. And so I have this guilt and shame. I just, I've sinned against my wife and my anger. and Here my wife is pouring out in love to our family, doing the 10 millionth load of laundry, and all I can think about is how she shouldn't have placed the laundry basket. She should have placed them in a better spot. And so now I know I need to go back into the room and apologize to my sweet wife for sinning against her. And so I quickly turn around and I walk into the room and there my wife is and she's just grinning ear to ear. And she just says, would you like to try that again? (laughs) And we laughed so hard and I apologized to her and asked for her forgiveness for my anger. But... My point is that my wife has learned to bear with my sins in many ways. There I am, having sinned against her, and instead of being destroyed by my sin and shutting off and getting angry at me because I was so stupid to get angry at her for the placement of laundry baskets while she's working so hard for our family, she didn't shut off. Instead of getting bitter that she has all this laundry to do, and here I am just yelling at her and blaming her for me getting hurt, she's sitting there smiling because she knows that I struggle with my anger, And she has learned to bear with me. And do you know how sweet that moment was between my wife and I? Like, I'll never forget that. She's just sitting there grinning after, like, I know I've sinned against her. And we laugh so hard when she says, would you like to try again? Because I knew that she loved me. And she knew I had come to apologize to her, and I loved her, even though I sinned against her. That is bearing with one another. That is what a church with real love does to one another. They bear one another's burdens. They forgive one another freely when they're sinned against. And then, oftentimes, they can even laugh about it later because they have real, genuine love between each other. And that's the type of church we want. 
There's much more that's needed in our church, and next week Esteban's going to talk more about our need to admonish one another, but we'll stop here. But can you please stop trying to be the greatest disciple? You're not. You don't have to be. Instead, our church would be a much more enjoyable place if you'll just see yourself as the chief of sinners and in repentance, be meek, listen to others, help others, and bear one another, and freely forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Stand with me for prayer. Father, please help our church to have real love. Help us be helpful and to listen to one another. Help us bear with the weakness and oddities and personalities and sins of each other. Please help us when we find ourselves acting like the disciples, trying to see who is the best disciple. Would you help us remember Christ? Would you help us remember that we're not a disciple of yours because or anything special, but because you first loved us. Not because we're the most humble, we're the most frugal, we're the kindest. Would you remind us that even though we sin, you still love us, and you bear with us, and Christ bore our sins to the cross. And because of that, would you help us bear with one another in similar fashion? We ask this in Christ's name. We're going to sing.